0: so you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's Notion.com squared. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Hi, everyone. Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcast app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, we welcome back Tim Spector, the leading expert on food and nutrition, joins us to discuss his new book, Food for Life. eating the right food is the simple most effective way of preventing illness and staying healthy and poor diets can account for up to 50% of common diseases including cancer, arthritis, heart disease and dementia. But knowing what's good and what's bad can be difficult nowadays. Whether it's red wine or acai berries we're constantly receiving new information about what to put on our plate and Tim Spector's new book is looking to make all that conflicting information a little bit more clear. Our host for today's Interview is pediatric doctor and TV presenter Goody Singh. Let's hear more from Goody now.
1: Tim Spector is professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London, an honorary consultant physician at Guy's and St. Thomas's hospitals. He is also a multi-award-winning expert in personalized medicine and the gut microbiome, and the author of five books, including the bestsellers, Spoon Fed and the Diet Myth. He is the co-founder of the personalised nutrition company, Zoe, and leads the world's biggest citizen science health project, the Zoe Health Study. And as if that wasn't enough, he was awarded an OBE in 2020 for his work fighting COVID-19. His new book is Food for Life, the new science of eating well. Welcome to Intelligence Squared.
2: Thanks, Goody. It's great to be here.
1: Oh, thank and you for I'm being with forward us. Looking to our chat. <laughs> Absolutely. So you've written so many books, Tim. Um, But I have to say that I found this one, which is Food for Life, to be incredibly informative. So thank you for writing it. I have a huge number of questions, though, so I hope you'll indulge me now. I'd like to kick off with the project of the book. It's called Food for Life, The New Science of Eating Well. And what it's not called, I'm happy to say, is something like How to Lose Weight in 10 Easy Steps or anything like that. Now, given that we live increasingly in a world that is clickbaity and all about online junk food, so to speak... What was your idea when you set out to write a book that is, in fact, very scientific and well researched? Well,
2: I guess my previous books on on nutrition have been The Diet Myth, which introduced the gut microbiome to people about eight years ago, and which sort of said there were a lot of myths around diets that really shouldn't be there because of our new understanding of the gut microbiome and how we got a lot of this wrong. And that the, my previous book, then Spoonfed, was a about following up how we'd been misled about nutrition and how food companies and advertising have been really influencing a lot of uh what we're told about food and how we have got the wrong ideas and how some of the science also which's been badly funded and un you know under resourced led to this real gap in our knowledge, plus the new finding that you know a lot of our responses to it are very personalized so it isn't possible, really, to come up with a perfect diet for everybody, and that these these attempts to try and squash us into these little boxes of calories and fats and sugars is wrong. But what I wanted to do after those two books was to write something that was a real practical guide because, so we were having the theory saying what's wrong and what you shouldn't do and whatever, but everyone kept asking me, yes, but that's all right, Tim. You know, I understand it, but you know, what sort of breads do you eat? Um, how do you uh, pick the right cabbage or berries to eat, and you know, what really is ultra-processed food, and what's bad about it? How do you know? How do I do my weekly shop in a way that I know is going to be healthy? You know, how can you help me? So that's that's where I came up with this this idea of sort of doing an A to Z of food, really, but really much more from a practical point of view that people could get the theory, but also delve really into the detail about whether it's, you know, the nutritious value of carrots or it was whether apples are better for you than pears or, you know, should you worry about organic food or not? Or, you know, what type of fish, if you're going to buy fish, you should buy, what you should look out for, which types of food might be slightly fraudulent, where, you know, you need to be paid more attention. So it took me six years to do this. And I realized that there was a reason no one else had done this book. It's incredibly tough. And um I wouldn't recommend anyone else do it, uh, because it's nearly a sort of impossible task to to try and get all these uh facts and questions. But in the end, you know, we had to draw a line on it. And I think hopefully uh, we've got most of the, the the pertinent facts uh down there and this full of pack full of tables and people can see, you know, how I rank foods according to my health, and hopefully others can can gain things from it. So it's, it, it's really something that hopefully people will read not just once, but have as a sort of reference guide when they've got some question about food they can delve into and put it next to the, the cookery books, if you like, rather than just, you know, on the library shelf, never to be seen again.
1: Yeah, no, there's no question, Tim, that what you have done here with this book is quite a feat. And I have to say, I do not envy you the task of having to sift through all of the evidence, which you've done you know, so diligently to make sure that what we have with this book is, a, as you said, a reference text in a way um, on food. It's all of the latest evidence, but presented in a really, really accessible way. And I suppose this kind of follows what you've been doing with your career and in in writing more generally. You know, when I look at your history and the books that you've written previously, to me, it feels like there's a recurring theme. They've all got this sense of uncovering and kind of truth-telling at their heart, which I I think the the public really appreciate. I mean, if we take, for example, the diet myth, the tagline for that was the real science behind what we eat. And on um, SpoonFed, it was why everything we've been told about food is wrong. Now, I'm a pediatrician. I'm also a public health doctor. And as a clinician who tries to approach medicine holistically, I welcome your interventions. Because actually, what I sometimes wonder with our society today is... Maybe what we're lacking is this general working knowledge about nutrition, not just about food, but how it's cooked, how it's grown, how we can construct meals so that food can be used as literal medicine. Tim, how do you think it is that modern society got to be so illiterate about food? And how do you think your book actually helps to fill that gap in our collective knowledge?
2: Well, I think our ignorance is, is not global. And there are some countries with very strong food cultures where they do understand about food. And, you know, a great example of a rapidly developing uh, country that was, you know, sort of penniless in the 1960s is now, uh, you know, richer than the UK is like South Korea. And they've maintained their strong food traditions. Everyone at school learns how to make the national dish uh, kimchi. And... They're regularly uh, informed about you know healthy eating, and wouldn't accept that, you know, they suddenly one day, had to throw out their homemade kimchi, and it would be prepared for them in an ultra-processed packet that they just microwaved and uh, away they went. Whereas that happened to us in the U.K and in the U.S quite rapidly as industrialization of food came. And, any food culture that was there before was swept away in this, this sort of wave of it's easy, it's convenient, you know, drop everything else, this is modern, go for it. And we were taken in by it all. And that's, that's why we're in this position. But not every country, even in Europe, is like that. Um, if you go to the Mediterranean countries, you know, places like Portugal are already having 10% of their energy as uh, ultra processed foods, whereas the UK, it's over 50% and 70% in children. so it's staggering, isn't it, the difference? We still have big differences within Europe and I think a lot of that is, uh, you know, the fact that the UK didn't really have a food culture and certainly in the 1970s didn't believe it had anything to really protect. We just said, well, we've got dreadful food, therefore we'll take information from wherever to improve it or make it easier to make. And on the one hand, the UK has probably the most diverse Foods you can get in the best restaurants. And ironically, probably the worst diet in, in Europe. So it's it's partly to do with that uh, that vacuum, which I think happened post-war when factories, for example, making little artisan cheese places were shut all the way around the country to make the way for just government-sponsored cheddar. Everyone made the same food and everything became rather standardised into corned beef and standard foods and we never really recovered from that mentality whereas other european countries had these regional culinary cultures that that were very persistent and haven't been damaged by the food system nearly as much as we have in the uk yeah so we're certainly not alone but it seems with the anglo-saxon world australia canada us you know there's something about what you know the uk did to the rest of the world, as you know, is our legacy in in passing this around that we have to take some some blame for. But you know, as I said, it's it's given us amazing restaurants and an ability to take cuisine from all over the world. But at the same time, has left this hole with what you know the families are eating and what we know as good food. We've lost that connection to say, well, what's good quality food? What's poor quality food? I think it's just not been passed down from grandmas to to kids as it is in many other cultures around the world, uh, you know, Asian cultures in particular, very strong. And we're seeing that being lost even when, you know, second generation immigrants in this country. So, you know, it's, it's something we have to reverse if we're, gonna, if we're gonna make progress and not bankrupt our society by being the, the most obese, the most sick, eating the worst food in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, you paint a really stark picture there when you you describe the UK in those terms. I'm so glad that you mentioned other cultures, other countries, which do have different food traditions and which, of course, the UK draws on. But I want to pick up on this idea of what we might call, I guess, a cultural heritage or our shared general knowledge about food. And actually, this first hit home to me when I went to medical school, because I remember how struck I was by the fact that the whole topic of food was chucked into a couple of throwaway lectures. Which is bad enough when we think that on average British people spend about a third of their waking hours thinking about food—probably more in my case. But what's even worse is how shockingly simplistic the story we were told was. You know, things like, oh, you know, you need carbs for energy, protein to build your muscles, and you know, yeah, fat—well, fat just makes you fat. (laughs) You know, that that kind of thing, which is what we were told effectively in medical school, obviously with a bit more, bit more nuance. And that contrasted starkly with what I had been taught at home. So my family, just as you were saying, uh, in terms of the Asian context, is from India. My mother is from the state of Kerala. And when I was small and watching her cook at home, she would tell me stories about how she grew up in a garden that was filled with not just ingredients but also medicinal plants. You know, where almost every leaf or fruit or seed was potentially life giving. And so I was really interested by the tagline in your book because it's the new science of eating well. And I'm sure that lots of people out there would argue that, you know, for huge sections of the world, just as you said, and for much of human history, actually food has always been seen as medicine. And I wonder what... Actually, might truly be new, then, is not the science particularly, but actually food itself to Western science in a way. And by which I mean food as a serious topic of investigation for Western science. Because let's not forget that, you know, while things are changing, food in many people's eyes is still the preserve of women, of wives and mothers. Uh, and as a result, in our sadly still patriarchal world, it hasn't historically received the attention or respect that, quite frankly, it deserves. And in many ways, I wonder if Western science is just catching up with that ancient wisdom. And, you know, Tim, you're helping to change that. And you know, I'm so grateful to you for doing that. Uh, but I wonder if you could explain to us now, what do you mean when you say the new science of eating well? And actually, maybe you can reflect on how you think science is now approaching food in a way that it didn't previously.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, great comments and questions in there. And and like you, earlier than you, I had maybe two hours of nutrition training And the worst thing is that i speak to medical students now it's you know still only two or three hours and medical students still learn more about treating scurvy than they do about treating obesity and no one's ever seen a case of scurvy but it makes a nice story and i think doctors have been frightened of uh, nutrition and food as maybe traditionally seen as rivals you know quack medicine. If they believe in food, they won't take the medicines. And I think this is still very persistent in, in mainstream uh, medicine. And virtually no medical school in this country has managed to break that mould and to embrace lifestyle medicine. And you know, I think people are breaking away and there are lots of GPs now you know, starting to embrace lifestyle medicine, but they can't do it within the, the traditional structures. I've gone off topic now, so I'm <laughs> not actually a question. No,
1: not but, at all. I mean, you're you're saying exactly right. You're saying exactly the right thing, which is that you know science, for whatever reason, and it's obviously part of a legacy and all the rest of it. We're
2: catching up. Just yeah. hasn't
1: thought about food in this way. But what what I really admire about what you're doing is that you're making food a legitimate topic yeah. for scientific investigation. Um, which, you know, in some way, somebody could pick up your book and say, "Well, isn't it common sense?" But I would argue. It's not common sense because no. I wasn't taught that at medical school, let alone what people are being taught out there. So th- for me, I think this is actually important because what you're doing is you're saying that this stuff matters and that it deserves the, the kind of attention that you are now giving to
2: it. Absolutely. So it's all about reductionism. So we were taught in medical school, only really think four things matter for food, calories, fats, sugars, Protein, you know, that's it. Maybe you add in vitamins and you've got everything, right?
1: Right, yeah, you need to have scurvy in there somewhere, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, because the whole science in nutrition was based on deficiency, not on giving people a good diet. So it was based on all the famines and problems after the Second World War. So it's a very new science and it was based on, oh, we've got to get people enough vitamins so they don't, you know, get massive protein deficiency or whatever. So all these calculations about what we should eat and everything were to avoid. The disastrous disastrous, you know, problems at the bottom, not at the top. So it started from the wrong place. Traditional Western medicine never sort of embraced Ayurvedic medicine and the whole idea, which has the gut at its core and also Chinese medicine. They were seen as quack rivals. And, you know, I think the idea that the pill is, is, is you know, the main thing that Western medicine uh, teaches us. So What's changed in my view in the last uh, 10 years is that we've realized several things food is not just these four components. Food is 30,000 different chemical metabolites, at least. And, you know, you pick a garlic or something like that, which people might say, okay, there's this one component, allicin, or uh, if it's, you know, red wine, it's just resveratrol, but there are hundreds of other chemicals having an effect and these, chemicals are then interacting with our trillions of gut microbes which are acting like chemical pharmacies to convert those chemicals into tens of thousands of other chemicals which then interact with our body and our enzymes etc so it's suddenly you know a major mind shift to uh, envisage our body and our microbes as this key pharmacy that is converting these multiple chemicals in foods into other drug-like substances which go around our body and have massive effects on our immune system, our brain, and our uh, metabolism. And because we didn't know this, we didn't break food down into these metabolites, uh, we didn't know about the gut microbiome, what how it's you know its key role in interacting with food, we just saw food as this you know, like feeding a furnace. You know, it was this very blunt instrument. You put stuff in, uh, it gave off energy, heat in form of heat and made you fat or thin. And things like fiber were just thought of as pure roughage that just cleansed your tubes out and got rid of toxins. And that's sort of what medical students were taught and probably sadly are still taught today. And that's why the level of of knowledge in, in medicine is so poor. But it is these massive advances in the last 10 years that have really told us to think about it in a different way. It's not about deficiencies. It's not about focusing on one vitamin in a, in a whole plant. It's about trying to get the other 800 ingredients uh, sorted out. It's about a holistic approach. It's not about demonizing one food because you know about it and you can then write it and work out its pathway. It's, it's trying to say, well, what does this, this whole lifestyle, this way of eating, this you know, what do these 20 plants together give you when you have the right set of microbes and the right metabolic state? It's, it, it's a total change in complexity from this reduced, simplistic, dumbed-down version of nutrition to one of the most exciting but complex areas of medical science. And I think that's the step change. And once you've made it, you can't really go back. You can't take anyone seriously who says, Oh, I'm having that food because it's got, you know, 20 less calories than that one. Or it says on the packet that this one has got more vitamin C than that one. You know, it's just, it it suddenly changes your whole idea of how you view food. And you want to know more about the foods that you're eating and how they interact with your body. And, you know, and not, you know, and understanding that these chemicals that give us these amazing tastes and flavors. And aromas and everything else about it are also key in affecting our body and giving us these these amazing chemical signals. Uh, you know, the same color in turmeric that gives you know your curry that nice color and smell and pungency has you know an effect on your immune system that you know probably helps us uh, with our cancer drugs and uh, f- helping our immune system. Put it all down to that same chemical level, whether you're smelling it, your immune system is, is detecting it, your microbes are using it. That's what the difference is. So we've got to start forgetting everything we were taught about, calories and fats and, uh, and sugars and start thinking about food in their entirety and everything that they, they contain. And then not just foods, but then going on to say, well, so what's in the whole plate? Add up your plates in that day and what does that give you? And that's what we should be talking about. That's what we should be focusing on, on healthy diets. and. Seeing that just because something looks similar, one's ultra processed and one's not, they're not at all the same. Even though they look the same, they may have the same calories, same fat content, they have a completely different effect on your body. And I think that's the new way we need to look at food. and uh, And it, it's quite hard for people to do that, and especially people like medics who have been brainwashed into this very narrow vision of nutrition as something that a few quacks talked about, you know. Uh, and dangerously so because it might stop people taking their diabetic medicine if they uh they listen to them.
1: <laughs> well, you know, this is all the more reason to be grateful to you Tim for complexifying the issue in a way that is actually helpful as opposed to kind of just obfuscating what's actually happening and I have to say I I am grateful to you for moving us away from that reductionist mechanistic way of thinking of bodies, you know, just very functionally as you said like a furnace where we have to add fuel and that's it. Like as if food is just fuel when we know that it's so much more. And, you know, I said before, there's cultures who do think of food as medicine, but let's be honest, food is joy. You know, how much pleasure do we get out of the process of cooking? The smells, as you say, and actually, which I have to say, I really enjoyed the section in your book where you talk about the senses and that kind of Extra dimension to food. You know, we we do tend to think about food in very functionalist terms, but there's so much more to it than that. And I loved the fact that you know that you go into the science of taste and smell and the effects that it has on us as you know as as organisms. And you know, for anyone who's a bit geeky, loves the science. There's lots of it in this book, so I definitely encourage you to look at that. I wanted to talk about the fact that I think the general public is actually a bit further ahead than medics on this, and they do get that you know uh, food is a bit more than just Fuel. And we know that healthy eating is a big business nowadays, you know, and the the problem is that actually a great many products are now passing themselves off as healthy. So, you know, protein bars or milk substitutes when they're really not. And so I'd like to just pin the idea for a moment about the role of big business and corporations in sculpting our food landscape, because it is something I want to come back to. But I'd like us to quickly consider what it means for the average consumer, because after all, that's who's going to be reading your book, right? So For instance, you know, we've all heard about the dangers of ultra-processed foods, which you just brought up. Why do we find ultra-processed foods so irresistible? And can you just talk us through why they're actually so damaging? Because I think people have heard about this, but they don't really get what the problem is here.
2: Yeah. Well, for the last 30 years, the top scientists in nutrition have gone to work for food companies to uh, design foods that are incredibly tasty and sort of irresistible, because by uh, using ultra processed foods, it means that they can use basically extracts of any other food, like a, a chemical ingredient in a factory and just add whatever it is to another and add some glue to stick it all together to make it look like the original food, but it's got these incredible perfect levels of salt, uh, sugars, artificial sweeteners, flavorings, you know often a bit of fat that just gives you that bliss point that makes it irresistible it doesn't occur in nature, and we 've all had that that perfect snack uh, that you can 't just have one off you know people say it's the the Pringles for example is a good a good example, but there are many others that it's perfectly engineered uh doesn't contain much potato at all. It's just all kinds of stuff put together.
1: So they're so they're effectively designed to be addictive. These these
2: items of food. Yes, hmm. absolutely. Yes, they and they're extremely good at it. You know, and we don't eat them because we're forced to. We eat them because we like them. They're tasty. And what we're now knowing, the new science is showing, is that you know, there's been one major study done where compared uh, ultra processed food against the equivalent calorie, fat-controlled whole food, one made in factory, one made at home, uh, in sort of indistinguishable otherwise looking at it. And when you people ate the ultra-processed food, they would be overeating by about 20% every day, the identical food. So it makes them hungrier, it makes them more tired, it gives them greater sugar peaks, it has a different effect on their body in ways we still don't totally understand. And that's, I think, the major problem in the UK is this this reliance on ultra processed food. You know, 70% of children's meals is ultra processed. And not surprising we've got childhood obesity, because they're basically being designed to overeat them. And that same food will have a label on it that says low in calories, low in fat, um, you know, is good for you because it's, I don't know, they've added some zinc or something to say it's immune busting. And it's got some nice pretty pictures on it. And it's got government stamps of approval that, you know, it's got artificial sweetness, so it's got no sugar in it. And it's the biggest con that we're seeing is that these unhealthy foods, which are cheap and tasty and irresistible, but extremely unhealthy for us, are being marketed to us with impunity because of the the power of the food industry, and our general ignorance of the science behind why they're bad. Because we've previously said, you know, doctors are told, why is ultra food bad? Oh, it's because it was high in fats and high in sugars and some in salt. So if they, if they, if they just lower that amount, then they're, they're perfectly healthy. And that's what the food industry's done brilliantly. And they stick low in salt, sugar, and, and fat and reprocess it, but it exact, has exactly the same effects on you in that you're overeating rubbish that has very little nutritional value. And that's that's really a, the core of this, this country's problems is, is understanding that key difference between whole foods and these uh, synthetic varieties that we've become addicted to.
0: Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared, netsuite.com squared. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: Yeah. And it comes back to that idea of education, doesn't it? And knowledge and understanding what food is for and where it should come from and how it should, you know, how you should be eating it. But this is where it kind of collides with this whole issue about politics and financing of food. And I, I want to come back to that now, because that's that is something I think is really central to this. Now, you don't obviously cover it explicitly in huge amounts of detail in your book. But as a leading scientist in the field, you obviously have to confront this issue. You do point out about in the 1980s, how advice to change from butter and cream uh, for things like margarine and vegetable oils was, in quotes, one of the biggest health scandals ever. So Tim, I want to put to you now this question of, you know, what was the role of big food in creating the bad science around scandals like that then? And what is the role now of big food in our ever-changing and ever-growing food landscape today?
2: Well big food wasn't big food in the 1970s they were quite small companies and so they've become massive you know they now have budgets bigger than medium-sized countries you know, the top 10 food companies that control over 70% of our food and they have enormous lobbying power you know they can see prime ministers you know uh health ministers whenever they like and they do this multiple times a year and who knows what they offer them in return for Uh, A word in their ear. But they reacted first to the medical science. They didn't start the the trend. The medics got it wrong. They said fat was the problem uh, back in the, the 1970s. So they said, fine, okay, we'll reformulate our products to make them lower fat, lower saturated fat, and use all these artificial ingredients to do that, and then stuck a label on it saying low fat. And that worked very well. Those products were cheaper for them. They sold more. They made more money. They became even richer. And as people moved away from natural products to these artificially created ones, they had longer shelf lives. And in a way, uh, the companies got richer and richer on the basis of that. And they, once this idea was there, they they kept it sustained. So they would lobby for rules not changing. they lobby still now to make sure that we don't change the rules about uh, avoiding fats, and that's why the NHS still says, you know, you should avoid saturated fats, and you should go for low, low fat spreads and yogurts, etc. when there's absolutely no evidence for that. It's purely just the effect of, of this lobbying and the, and the sort of resistance of, of boards like Public Health England or, you know, UK, I say, or the NHS to admit they've made a mistake and, and move on, as, you know, real scientists should do and We've all made mistakes and, you know, I've made many. And now they're in a position of huge power that they weren't in the 1970s. And they give money for funding research to nutrition departments to steer them away from doing studies like ultra-processed food against whole foods. They keep focus on fats, even though most of that story has has now gone. And they're distracting, you know, the scientific community away from the really big questions of Do all these extra ingredients in foods really affect our brains? Do they affect our our gut microbes? You know, why are we adding unlimited chemicals to our food all the time without real um, health checks on them? Because they're saying, well, they're cheap, and in the current economic environment, let's give people cheap food. Uh, Otherwise, you know, politicians will get in trouble. So that's sort of where we are. And most countries are in in a bit of this mess, although I think the UK Uh, And the U.S. are definitely leading the world in this, and others will go
1: Yeah, sadly. Absolutely. I mean, look, thank you for talking about the idea of lobbying and how that sways, how research is done, and obviously what policies are introduced. I think it's important because people think about uh, food decisions as if they occur in a vacuum sometimes, Um, and they don't, obviously. You say in your book that virtually every common disease has some link with diet, and it feels like with this book you're making the case that with greater knowledge – we can each empower ourselves as individuals to make better choices and i totally agree however there seems to me just as we discussed structures that you know restrict our ability to be able to do that the global food industry was recently valued to be over 11.5 billion dollars but i can tell you that for a large proportion of ordinary families the kinds that i see in my clinic every day a bigger market doesn't necessarily mean more choice for all of us and you know we're recording this now in november 2022 we're in the midst of a severe cost of living crisis. And if people are going to be able to make the most of the wisdom, and it is wisdom that's contained in your book, Tim, I feel like surely we're going to have to do something first about the increasing unaffordability of healthy foods, aren't we? Um, and I wonder in this context, Tim, what kinds of choices could you help people with in terms of how can they realistically make decisions that are good for their bodies and for their budgets?
2: Well, they're all, they're all great points. And I, in the book, I do talk about affordability and the fact that uh, there are some surprising foods that are actually very healthy and very affordable. So tin tomatoes, for example, have greater levels of the protective uh, chemical lycopene, which has some anti-cancer properties, than, say, fresh tomatoes. And it costs tiny amounts of money, a can of tomatoes. Similar, I found that Cans of beans and lentils are enormous uh, nutritional value, great sources of protein, cost very little. Uh, you've got frozen vegetables, frozen peas, beans, excellent uh, sources of nutrition that cost very little. And you know we've been dismissing those. So sometimes we, we lump all those things together wrongly with ultra-processed food when actually you know they they are in their pure form pretty good and same with frozen berries out of season nothing wrong with those at all freezing most foods is actually a pretty good way of storing them you know buy them when they're cheap have them later and so there are many ways of eating healthily and doing it cheaply and people complain you know that some of the fermented foods you buy might be expensive but they're incredibly cheap to make yourself and many countries around the world routinely make their own fermented milks or kefirs every day uh, just by you know pouring one into another and you you keep it going so i think there are lots of tips in the book for people not only to know what's healthy but also some surprising things that everyone can can actually do that might change their mind basic vegetables you know mushrooms for example are extremely healthy for us to eat and uh, you know, nothing wrong with apples. Uh, you don't have to have exotic berries or fruits or uh, chia seeds or, uh, you know, things that come from Peru. A lot of them are on our doorstep and uh, we should be eating uh, many more of them at the moment. But people just need to be more aware of, you know, what are the foods that are they're surrounded by that are good and which ones are passed off as healthy that are, aren't actually uh, anything like as healthy as, as that. And, and as you said, I think the, the whole point of the book is that we make hundreds of food choices every day. And those choices we make are probably the most single empowering thing we can do for our health and the health of our family. And I think that's a really important message that you don't need a doctor or a, help, a professional to, to help you make those choices. And it's also, as I write in the book, we haven't discussed it much, most important thing you can do for the planet. So if you're worried about environment and global warming, your own personal food choices are far more important than whether you travel by air or have a Range Rover or have solar panels on your your house. So, you know, just that choice of how much meat or dairy uh, you're going to eat has much more impact on your global footprint as well. So food choices is crucial for so many reasons.
1: Totally. And I really want to turn to that issue, exactly that of how food and human health collide with that question of planetary health. Um, Because, I mean, there's virtually nothing now that can be said that doesn't intersect with our growing climate emergency, sadly. Um, And this is an issue I care deeply about personally. I actually covered the Lancet planetary health diet for BBC Two's Trust Me, I'm a Doctor a couple of years ago. And that's a diet that essentially advocates for less meat and more whole grains and vegetables. Now, in the West, I think it's so easy for us to forget how our eating habits have a huge impact on ecology and on global warming. And let's not forget that the world's population just passed 8 billion on November the 15th of 2022. So this is a question that is only more and more relevant. And I know, as you just said, that this is something you care about, Tim. You have a whole chapter of your book titled What to Eat to Save the Planet. Now, from your own knowledge and research into this topic, Maybe you could just leave the audience here with some ways that they can think about eating that is both good for them and for the planet. And maybe, maybe in a way, the simplest thing to ask you is, what could I cut from my diet tomorrow without compromising my health? Because I think that's sometimes what people worry about.
2: Yes. Well, environmentally speaking, it's very clear from all the analyses done that cutting out or reducing beef and lamb from our diets, which, you know, The British were the beef eaters, you know, the French call us le roast beef. Um, You know, for history, (laughs) we were known as the beef eaters. If we're going to do something as a country about global warming, uh, that's the number one thing that should be on our agenda. And, you know, I'm not saying everyone has to cut it out completely. But if we all just reduced by half our beef and lamb consumption, that would have a massive effect. Because... Agriculture is the main uh, driver of uh, climate change. And we started having, pr- using plants as protein substitutes. And people worry, I'm not getting enough protein. That's absolute nonsense. You get all the protein you need from legumes and other vegetables, mushrooms, et cetera, et cetera. So beef, lamb, reducing dairy. We don't need to drink milk. I still have dairy products, but I generally have fermented ones, which I know are good for me, so having less of that. And if you are going to, you know, switching to those plant milk alternatives, if you feel you can't give it up, is better for the planet, although not necessarily better for your health. So you need to be aware that you often have to make some some balance there. So if, if when I switched to oat milk, I found that really affected my sugar levels, so... Milk is actually better for me than oat milk. But oat milk's better for the planet. So you've got to make some trade-offs here. But the more plants we all eat, the cheaper they'll get. And there's plenty of sources of protein from plants. We don't have to worry. You know, there's 2 billion people in the planet uh, who don't ever eat meat. And they're perfectly healthy. And we've got so many good ways of eating vegetarian cuisine that we need to start embracing that. And people just do this slowly. You you don't need to do it overnight. You don't have to be a 100% vegetarian or vegan. I'm not, you know, I'm 98% vegetarian. Um, And I'm happy with that. You know, I don't think we need labels, but if we care about the planet, we care about health. The more you reduce your meat, particularly processed meat, that's definitely good for your health and the planet. You can still have good quality meat occasionally, but the rest of the time leave plenty of space on your plate for a diverse range of plants. And increasing diversity is also important for the planet as we move away from monocultures and we start to grow lots of other things together. So, they're, they're the basic stuff. Eat more plants, eat more diverse plants. Don't worry about losing protein. We get far too much protein as it is anyway. That's, that's absolute nonsense. And, you know, let's all embrace. The cultures that have given us these amazing vegetarian cuisines, and you know, you mentioned India as a, as a great source of inspiration for all of us, and um, you know, we do have the curry as our national dish now. So um instead of a ch- instead of chicken tikka masala, <laughs> let's make it, uh, you know, <laughs> <a> tofu. <laughs> tofu masala. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh gosh, Tim, we could be talking all evening, but I think the audience would not be very happy if we didn't ask let them ask you some questions now. So I'm going to stop myself there. I've got a question here from Stella, and she says that our understanding of food has been dramatically advanced by science in recent years. Are there any other such breakthroughs that you can envisage happening in the future?
2: Uh, well, I think we're still at the very early stages of understanding the gut microbiome and all the chemicals they produce. So we know that the gut microbes produce vitamins and other really important brain chemicals. And I think we're gonna be able to harness that knowledge to grow microbes for us in big fermenting tubes and actually use those natural producing medicines and things to help us um, and change our whole view of supplements and medicines. And and actually microbes could be the way we actually in, in five years time all eat protein. So you can uh, get the groups of microbes that just produce these proteins, which you can grind up and into flours and things like this. That uh, could be a way of getting us protein without using a quarter of the land mass to do it. And uh, that's ex- that, that's really exciting.
1: Wow, that sounds so futuristic. But it's not.
2: It's not that crazy, <laughs> and you know, within five years, we're going to see stem cell meat on the shelves. We're going to see wow. lots of fermented. Um, vegetable products, which are, are resembling meat, replacing meat. So I think in five years we're going to see meat overtaken by um, by alternatives. And so that's that's my big hope for the future. That uh, you know, meat will become this luxury product that we have on special occasions, but not as this everyday uh, event that we do at the moment.
1: Oh, fascinating. So there's a question from Michelle and she says, you talk about food as medicine. Is there a danger that people who are seriously ill will think that they can cure themselves merely by a change of diet? And this is a great question because I get asked this a lot actually, especially in relation to certain kinds of diseases like cancer. Um, Tim, what can you, what do you say in response to that?
2: Well, this is the general anxiety of all doctors and that's why in a way medical profession has been told to just shut that out because that stops people coming forward who've got real problems. So if you've got really severe high blood pressure or diabetes or uh, early signs of cancer, you know, you need to go and get checked out. But that doesn't mean that uh, you don't consider diet in all of those things as well. So I think they're complementary. We can't do without doctors, but we shouldn't assume that you can't improve your health as well uh, by changing your diet. And d- depression is a good example of this. If you're severely depressed, you need to see a doctor an anti. But If you're mildly depressed, changing your diet is as effective as antidepressants. And I think we have to try and work out where the sweet spot is of this balance. Yes, chemotherapy can cure you of cancer, but if you also are taking things like mushrooms or other herbs and spices, you can in- dramatically improve your response to those medicines uh, by taking the right foods. So it, it's, it's a question of a balance. And I think we need, doctors need to start embracing nutritional advice rather than seeing them as some other group that they don't in, interact with. And when, they, when they're moving together, that's when they're going to be most effective. So every cancer doctor needs to understand much more about nutrition so they can help their patients and they're not doing it on the side, because you know, they're worried about telling their doctors.
1: Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more with that. Um, now, this question is—I mean, it's jumping around a little bit, obviously—but this is, a, I think, a very important question. So, uh, what would you like to see the government doing to help improve the nation's diet? And the suggestions here are: are sugar taxes or a traffic light system on
2: packaging helpful? I don't think traffic light systems are useful. I recently came back from Chile, and they have the toughest packaging labeling in in the world, with black dots all over it, but people. Are still buying this stuff and they're getting rapidly fatter every year, and the kids are, you know, are having all these these sweet drinks despite it. Let's get used to the labelling. Taxes do work. Uh, the sugar tax worked, but it was extremely narrow, and the lobbyists prevented it being expanded to things like milk products and children's yogurts and things like this, which are a complete nutritional disaster. So, in countries that have expanded their sugar taxes, they do do well, but we then tend to replace them with unhealthy things like artificial sweeteners, which maybe not quite as bad as sugar are still uh, unhealthy for us. So I think uh, putting subsidies into fresh products, which are relatively getting more and more expensive compared to these ones made in factories by robots, is important. So we either tax the junk foods like you, you do cigarettes, or you subsidize the uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. And, help people to produce the, the good stuff and make it uh, more available.
1: Mm. Thank you for saying all of that. The next lot of questions feels almost like it should be a quick fire round. <laughs> so let's try this. Um, so the first question is, uh, I've read that cutting up things like salad leaves a few hours before you eat them or eating mustard with brassicas to boost their health giving effects um, is useful. What do you think? And that's from Yasmin. Uh,
2: definitely true for some things. Um The evidence is really clear that if you cut up your garlic and onions 10 minutes before you fry them, you you will get many more of the good nutrients uh, from them. And in general, cutting things up before and then mixing them in the pan with a good oil is the way to really get more out of your food than doing it all the last minute or cooking them separately. So many examples of that. It's real real biology. Yes. So... Uh, cut up your garlic early and then yeah. go and have a cup of tea and then put it in in the pan.
1: Oh, I can take my time over the cooking is what you're saying. <laughs> um, so another quick question then from Kwame this time. I've read that probiotics, as opposed to prebiotics, are only really beneficial if you have an impaired microbiome. Do you agree? Now, we haven't really talked about the microbiome tonight yet, but they're kind of central, aren't they, Tim?
2: Yes. I mean, everyone has a unique microbiome. So that's the thing, you know, we all pretty much share... We're all fifth cousins. So we all share 97% of our DNA with each other, but only about 20% of our uh, gut microbes. And this is why probiotics are are a bit of a problem, because if you're only picking one or two strains, then they're going to work for some people, not not others, because we've got very different communities that are helping. It's a bit like giving the same fertilizer for, you know, um, African savannah or a tropical rainforest. They're not going to work the same way. In general, there is evidence that probiotics do work if you're unwell. There's no evidence they work if you are trying to prevent diseases. And I prefer probiotics in real food, fermented foods, where you get a greater range of microbes, such as your yogurts, your kaffirs, your kombuchas, your kimchis, your sauerkrauts, uh, your misos. Um, That's where you get the best probiotics in real food.
1: Well, that's super helpful. So your next question from Aidan is, um, we are told that there is no such thing as a superfood. And yet in your book, (laughs) the polyphenol count uh, of uh, acai berries is off the chart compared to that of other fruit and vegetables. So should we be eating them?
2: Great question. Well, yes, do eat them, but it doesn't mean (laughs) you shouldn't have the one that's number two on the list, you know, which I think was blackberries. Which are a local fruit we can get and freeze in large quantities, which are nearly as good and may have slightly more fiber. So we mustn't get obsessed with, you know, only following, it's like only following one football team and ignoring everything else, Uh, particularly if, you know, that is being transported all the way across the world at great expense. So many of the things that are good for us, superfoods, are all around us. And I believe that it's the diversity of those foods rather than just eating that one that's really important. So it's more the mix. So, you know, having a mix of berries, a mix of nuts, a mix of seeds is much more important than having your, your superstar uh, striker that's cost you know, 50 million. Uh, it's, the team is much more important.
1: That is so well answered, Tim. You're really good at this. I feel like I I was stretching you, but you're doing a really good job. So um, here's a question from Yusuf. And he says, do you think intermittent fasting is beneficial? And does it matter what time of day we have our main meal? That is an interesting question.
2: It is. And it's one dear to my heart because with the Zoe Health Study, which we mentioned earlier, which used to be mainly focused on COVID, um, it's transferred over to look at lifestyle interventions. We've got 120,000 people now signed up doing a community inter- intermittent fasting study as we speak. So anyone who wants to join that, just download the free app, the Zoe Health Study app, and they can take part. Um, the trials show it works. Um, and, and by mean, intermittent fasting means many things from the old-fashioned Michael Mosley 5-2 diet to the um, time-restricted eating concept, which is what we mainly talk about now. It's not what you eat, it, it's it's how you eat. And so the idea of restricting your eating time to a 10-hour window rather than a currently our 14-hour window, just doing that, eating the same amount of food but in less of time, has been shown to be metabolically beneficial for your sugars, your fats, your blood pressure, and uh, to the lesser extent, your weight. So that's what we're testing at the moment to see if what happens in these clinical trials and very limited number of people, younger people, is extrapolated to the whole population. Um, I think we're going to find it's personalized. Some people really get on with it well, and in theory, uh, whereas others don't. In theory, you should be fasting in the evenings and not the mornings, but For most people, it's much harder to do that. So it doesn't fit in with their lifestyle. So it's pointless. If you can't do it for years, forget it. Um, So that's what this big study is doing. And it turns out that 80% of people are picking the uh, eating later in the day, maybe skipping or delaying breakfast, and then eating it. Only about 20% are going for this, finishing all their food by 6 p.m. So in a way, it doesn't matter which is theoretically better. It's what suits you and what you're going to be able to sustain for the rest of your life if you're going to do this. And I think that's really important. But whatever advice we give, it's got to be sustainable for you in your lifestyle, you know, with your work, your kids, whatever it is, uh, and having a decent social life, and importantly, enjoying food. Because I know some people do a, a four hour time eating window and they say how healthy they are. Well, so yeah, great, but you kind of much social life, you know, uh, You know, unless all your friends (laughs) do the same thing and that all you're doing is, you know, going for a very long lunch every day.
1: Oh, I really like that, Tim. I really like how holistic that answer was about how we should be approaching all of this. Um, And look, we're running out of time. And I want to kind of finish with uh, a question, which is, well, essentially this book is, I mean, it's just so rational. And, you know, having now had the pleasure of meeting you, you're such a diligent scientist. You, in this book, furnish us with, every piece of evidence that we could reasonably ask for in a popular trade book. But I sense that at the core of all of this, all of the books you've written and everything that you've just said to us today, there's a deep personal quest within here. And I just wonder, if you're advocating for anything in this book, what would you say it is?
2: For us to look at food in a completely different way, I think that just, you know, erase everything we've, we've learned so far. Let's take a whole new approach in it and treat nutrition as a totally new science. And, and everyone should be a, a, an expert in it, so that everyone learn about food, the enjoyment it gives everybody, it gives uh, all of us how it's important social uh, function and you know it can help your health and it can help the planet. So I want everybody to think about food in a completely different way. And uh, if we redesigned it in a way our our country, our food, uh, our culture around this, I think we'll all be much happier.
1: Well, whenever you stand for Prime Minister, I'll be voting for you. (laughs) But if you're listening to this and you love food, Tim Spector's latest book, Food for Life, the new science of eating well, is out now. It's not to be missed. My thanks to the brilliant Tim Spector, to our wonderful audience and to Intelligence Squared.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.